You're listening to the Redeemer Theological Academy with Pastor Brian Cashelmeyer of Redeemer Lutheran Church, Los Alamos, New Mexico. On the Redeemer Theological Academy, we mine the riches of the Scripture and the Church Fathers and find in them Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer. Here's the Academy with Pastor Cashelmeyer. Welcome back to the Redeemer Theological Academy. Now, in today's lecture, we will continue our discussion on Isaiah chapter 25. We left off at verse 7, so we'll actually pick right back up at verse 7. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. So far the text. Now, if you recall, in our last lecture, we were discussing this veil, this covering that is over all the nations, that the devil has deceived, the devil has tricked, and he has oppressed the people of the earth so that they could not rightfully see the spiritual realities, the realities that God gives to us in his word, in which he reveals the knowledge of salvation. And so, in Second. Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes that as a minister, as an apostle, as one who has been put into an office, he has been sent out to the Gentiles to unveil, to remove the covering that is over the eyes. And in fact, as we talked about last time, if you recall, that the people of God are those people who have the word of God who believe in the promises of the Messiah, who acknowledge the sin that they have in their own sinful heart and the Savior that they have in Christ. Whereas those who are not God's people do not have these promises of the Messiah. They do not have the oracles of God. Instead, they are left in the dark. So if you have the oracles of God, you have the revelation and the knowledge of salvation. But if you don't have this knowledge, then you are left in the dark. Therefore, even when God's own people, who do have this word, refuse to listen to it, they then find themselves in the dark, as if they were not God's people. Because the veil, the covering, has now overtaken them, and it has hidden the reality of Christ. Therefore, when Paul is talking about the people of God, he's always talking about the people who hear the word, the remnant, those who believe, those who trust in the promises of Emmanuel, that is, God with us. So even if you had God's word, but you refuse to listen to God's word, then you are just like those who are not God's people. Therefore, when Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, Yes, even to this day, whenever Moses is read, now when he's talking about Moses being read, he's talking about in the synagogue, the synagogue in which they reject Jesus as a Messiah. So Paul says, Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But... When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, 
beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And here we have these words from Paul in 2 Corinthians to the baptized at Corinth, talking about the word of Moses being read in the synagogue, and a veil remains over their eyes if they refuse to listen and see Christ in the text. As Jesus says that Moses writes of him, and if you don't believe Moses, you won't believe Jesus. Therefore, when Paul is talking about this, they are stuck in that rut as if they were not God's people, that they have a famine spiritually of God's word, for the Holy Spirit is not there working to enlighten them. They are resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. But the apostles were sent out with this ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of life and not of death, that the Holy Spirit would be received through the word of Jesus. But Jesus is the key. It is through the mouth of Jesus that the Holy Spirit is given. Therefore, when you turn to the Lord, it is the Lord who opens the eyes to see, giving the Holy Spirit, turning to the Lord, meaning focusing on God who is there with us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to reveal to us the reality of our sins and our Savior. Paul will continue to write in chapter 4 of this letter to the baptized in Corinth, saying, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, when we take these two passages back to back from chapter 3 and chapter 4, we see the continuity that the Apostle Paul is giving to us that the Holy Spirit enlightens, open eyes to see, open ears to ear, open hearts to believe. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He opens these things. And this Holy Spirit comes through the message of the apostles, which is a message about Jesus. Now remember in chapter 3, he's talking about us, the baptized, who have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. We have unveiled faces, and we are beholding the glory of the Lord. That, of course, is Jesus. And we are being transformed into that same image. For Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now that same kind of an understanding is continuing in chapter 4 when he's talking about the mind of the unbelievers being blinded by the devil, that is, the God of this world, that they cannot see the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So they are not God's people, but those who are God's people are the ones who hear the word rightly, that it is about Jesus and it's about life, that we are being changed and transformed into the image of of the Son. So here we see the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That the Father sends the Son, the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes so that we can see the Son, and when we see the Son, we see the Father. Now the Apostle Paul tells the, the baptized in Colossae in chapter 1 of that letter, saying, 
that the Father has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So again, this is the work of God, that the Father sends the Son. The Father and the Son send the Spirit. The Spirit opens our eyes so that we can see, and then we are transferred into the kingdom of light, no longer participating in the dominion of darkness. But it is the light that we see, the light of Christ, who is the image of the Father. And so Christ comes to remove this veil, to swallow up this veil and this covering forever. After Isaiah tells us that Emmanuel, God with us, the Christ, would come to swallow up the veil and the covering that the devil has placed upon fallen humanity, then the prophet moves to the next verse in which he says that death itself will be swallowed up. So first you swallow up this deception of the devil, and then now you work and you swallow up even death. For the wages of sin is death. Now we know that the devil from the beginning was a liar and a murderer. So he lies, he deceives with this covering, and then he murders, he kills, he takes away the good life that God gives. On the contrary, of course, God is life and God is truth. And so now God comes in the mystery of the Incarnation, taking upon flesh in order to swallow up this deception of the devil, and now to swallow up death forever. So Isaiah writes in verse 8, saying, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. So that we have this whole turnaround here, that now the Christ comes in flesh in order to swallow up death. Previously, it was death that was swallowing up humanity, that is, prevailing over Adam and all of his descendants. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes in chapter 5 of his letter to the baptized in Rome, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sin was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now notice how Paul uses this, this imagery of death reigning like a king, that death has this dominion and death is a ruler, and death is the one that oppresses the people. But Now, the message of the Christ, the promise of the Messiah, is that there is a new king, a new reign, and a new kingdom with a new ruler. And he will be the one that rules over death. He will be the one who swallows up death forever. Now, take note of the imagery of swallowing. It's the imagery of eating, of partaking a piece, little by little. You are chewing it up, you are swallowing it, and then you take a bite of another piece, and you chew it up and swallow it. Little by little, you swallow up the food. And so this is what Christ comes to do in the resurrection, that he is swallowing up death forever. 
Now, in this fallen world, as we wait for the second coming of Christ, we still see death. We still experience the pain and the tears of death. But yet, little by little, as we approach that last day, this death is that final enemy that will be put under Christ's feet, the enemy that will be done away with forever. And so, little by little, we move forward to the time in which death will be completely swallowed up before our own eyes. In fact, this is exactly what he is doing in the life of each baptized believer. He is swallowing up death within us, little by little. He's doing this in conversion, so that the old Adam in us is daily being drowned dying in our baptism, and then the new man in us is daily rising to the glory of God in our baptism. So this good work that has begun in us in baptism will be completed on the last day, in the resurrection of our own body, that the Holy Spirit continues to come and to mortify the sinful flesh, and at the same time vivify, give to us this new life, restoring us, renewing us as we continue to walk in the light. Now understand that Christ is the one who comes to swallow up death. He is the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ is the head and the church is the body. And just like when an individual goes to sleep, you wake up and the head rises first and then the rest of the body follows to stand up, so too with Christ the head who has already risen and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so too the church will rise again and ascend to be with him. Now, in that great resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, we learn the reality that if Christ has not risen from the dead, then all of us are believing in vain. We have no hope. We should be pitied by the world. However, Christ has risen, and he has risen indeed. Hallelujah. And so that in this chapter in 15, we talk about this death being swallowed up in this way, in 1 Corinthians 15, that when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and when the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So that we learn that he is swallowing up death little by little, and we are looking toward the resurrection of our own body. And again, as we've said before, that for the baptized, the Holy Spirit is indwelling with us, and he is working in this conversion, changing us into the image of the Son, putting to death the sinful desire, swallowing it up little by little. And so where is death's victory? That's the saying. Well, Paul writes in verse 57 of chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians saying, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, death will not have the victory over us in the end, for we already have victory in Christ. Christ has already conquered death, 
and those who are in Christ are a new creation. There is no condemnation, and we already have the victory in him. We shall conquer too. Then finally, on that last day, with the resurrection of all people, all are going to be raised from the tomb, the sheep and the goats. And it's at that point in time when death will be put to an end and swallowed up completely forever. And then the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. This, of course, is the vision that John the Apostle has in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, when he says that the Lamb is in the midst of the throne and he will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So that we have this understanding that God is the one who is with us. He will be a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat, just like we have in Isaiah chapter 25. Later on in Revelation chapter 21, you have this same kind of an image and the same kind of a language in which John writes that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And so you have John with this same imagery of Isaiah that death will be swallowed up forever, death shall be no more, that God will wipe away every tear. So that's why in Revelation chapter 21, when John is writing about what he sees, he says that he sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is Mount Zion just like we've been talking in our lectures about the true city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And when the prophet Isaiah writes and says that the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, let the reader note that the first time that this word wipe away is used is in Genesis chapter 6. This Hebrew word macha is to wipe away, to blot out, to exterminate, to eradicate. And so he's going to exterminate, blot out, eradicate, wipe away, remove it from the land of the living. Because this is the way that uh, it was used originally, initially in Genesis chapter 6, in reference to the flood. So that Moses writes saying, and Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out. This is that Hebrew word, macha. He will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. So understand originally that this word, macha, was used to blot out transgressors with death. So that death was the instrument through which these transgressors were taken away, exterminated, eradicated, blotted out, and wiped away from the face of the earth. But now everything is turned upside down. So now death is the one 
that will be exterminated, eradicated, wiped out, and blotted out. No more will there be any death. Again, notice the contrast, that initially it was that there would be no transgressors, and they would be blotted out with death. Now, death itself will be removed, and the tears from all faces will be blotted out. And this happens through the person and work of Christ. And so, Psalm 51, David uses this same word, the same Hebrew word for blot out, wipe away, exterminate, this Hebrew word, macha, he uses it in reference to transgressions. He uses it twice. First in verse 1 of Psalm 51, David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And then again at verse 9, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. So if you're tracking with me, originally this word was used in Genesis chapter 6 in reference to transgressors being blotted out, wiped away, and removed. Then in Psalm 51, it's used in reference to transgressions, that the prayer of the faithful, the remnant, the believer, is to stand before a merciful God and for the sake of Christ ask that the sin, the transgression, would be blotted out. And then you have in Isaiah 25 that when death is swallowed up, when it is eliminated from creation, then all tears will be blotted out, they will be wiped away, they will be no more. Now, all of this is because of the person and work of the Christ. He comes to swallow up the veil, the covering over all the nations. He comes to swallow up death. He comes to take away transgressions. And when he does this, he takes away the tears. For sin brings death. And when sin is removed and death is removed, there is rejoicing and joy in God. In fact, Isaiah will continue and say that when he comes for his people, when he comes to bring his kingdom, Isaiah says, then the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. This reproach that the people had been living with, and again, when we talk about the people here, we're talking about the remnant, the repentant believers. Now, this is the same kind of language that as the church, the people of God, live in this fallen world. They are hated by the world because the world hates the Creator. And so we live under this cross, this suffering, this affliction, and this reproach. So that, for instance, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Or again in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Likewise, in John chapter 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, 
the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So in Isaiah chapter 25, the prophet is bringing this consolation to the people of God. Just as Jesus brings his consolation, that they would understand in the midst of their persecution that they are blessed and not cursed. That Jesus is assuring them that when these things happen, that Christ has not forsaken them. And so when Isaiah talks about this in chapter 25, he says that the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. Like he said earlier in verse 5 of the same chapter. And you will subdue the noise of the foreigners. The song of the ruthless is put down. That's all of those words that are spoken against the followers of God. That God himself will put an end to it. But in the meantime, we set our eyes upon him as the one who cares for us, as the one who assures us that all things work together for the good for those who love him that we are all being formed into the image of the Son. Now back to Isaiah 25 at verse 9. The prophet writes and says this, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now, once again, when we look at this phrase, on that day, or in that day, this is the language of the prophets when they talk about the future, They're describing to us these realities in the present. But they say it will take place in the future, in that day. So this is always pointed forward. And all of these promises are pointing toward the fulfillment of the mystery of the Incarnation, so that they're all pointing toward the person and the work of Christ, the one who comes to swallow up the covering the veil, the one who comes to swallow up death forever, the one who comes to remove the reproaches that has been placed upon his people in this fallen creation. So when the prophet uses that phrase, in that day, it points us toward the future and ultimately to Christ, like we saw back in Isaiah chapter 4, in which the prophet writes, In that day the branch of Yahweh shall be beautiful and glorious. Or back in Isaiah chapter 11, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. And so ultimately, on the day of resurrection, when death is swallowed up completely, we will have the complete full manifestation of this promise, that on that day, and all of this is focused in the day of the incarnation, where God comes to deliver us from death. But it will ultimately be on that last day of the resurrection of the body in which we see the reality that we now have in Christ. In the meantime, the preaching of Christ is very simple. You put forward his person and work before the eyes and the ears of the faithful, saying, Behold, this is our God. 
for true preaching is about the person and work of Christ. He is the Savior, and he comes to save his people from their sins. He is life, and he comes to restore life in us. And so this is true preaching to say, Behold, this is our God. Behold, this is Yahweh. This is none other than the salvation that we have been waiting for. I mean, this is what Isaiah will say later on in chapter 40, in which he proclaims and he says, Go up onto a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. This is the message of Christ. It's the message of the apostles. It's the message of the prophets. And of course, like in Isaiah 40, we have centered on the message of John the baptizer, who says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Revelation chapter 5, the elders said to John, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Redeemer Theological Academy. For more episodes or to leave comments about this show, please visit our website, RedeemerTheologicalAcademy.org. Again, that's RedeemerTheologicalAcademy.org. Thanks for listening, and may our Redeemer Jesus Christ continue to be your life and salvation, your hope and your peace.